Well, welcome. Uh, this is going to be a two-part lecture on when and when not to use PET-CT. Uh, the first part of the lecture will cover uh, oncology applications of FDG, the most common uh, PET radio tracer. And then the second part of the lecture will focus on some non-oncology applications of FDG as well as some new radio tracers. And with that, we'll jump right into discussing some oncology applications of FDG. Uh, First, uh, what exactly is molecular or functional imaging as defined by the Society of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging? Uh, molecular imaging is a type of medical imaging that provides detailed pictures of what is happening inside the body at the molecular and cellular level. What we need to accomplish molecular imaging is some kind of a tracer. This doesn't have to be a radio tracer, although it most commonly is. And a radio tracer is simply a small molecular antibody with some kind of radionuclide label that'll allow us to detect it with a PET scanner. Uh, this can be used to look at both uh, metabolism, which is what we do most commonly, such as with FDG, or uh, we can use uh, radio tracers uh, for specific ligand receptor interactions. And that's becoming more common in pet practice, although uh, many of those agents are still investigational. We use a number of different radionuclides in PET, uh, F18 being far and away the most common. And we can think of this as one of the organic atom-like uh, radionuclides, uh, where it's essentially a, an isosteer for hydrogen on small molecules or, or other, uh, other, types of, uh, other types of molecules. Uh, but we also use carbon-11, uh, nitrogen-13, and O15 for, for different radio tracers. And then it's becoming more common that we use radionuclides that are actually radiometals, uh, such as there's now an FDA-approved, uh, multiple FDA-approved agents that use gallium-68. Uh, and zirconium-89 is still an investigation on uh, a number of different uh, antibodies for, for PET imaging. In terms of the radio tracers that are in clinical practice, again, FDG is far and away the most common that we utilize, and it'll be the focus of a, a large part of, of both lectures. Uh, but there are a number of other things that are out there now and that are FDA approved. Uh, there's several amyloid agents for brain amyloid imaging, a couple of things for prostate cancer, FACBC, or more commonly now known as Aximin, uh, and C11-choline. Uh, sodium fluoride is sort of the PET version of bone scan. I won't really talk about that in either lecture. And then uh, gallium dotatate is uh, for neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, there's also gallium dotatoc that's now FDA approved. Uh, and we'll come back to that uh, in the second lecture. All right, so moving on. So FDG for oncology applications. Why does FDG work so well? It really works across a wide variety of cancers, uh, almost every kind of major cancer it has at least some role in. And the reason it uh, works so well in cancer is that uh, cancer cells mistake it for glucose and they import it into the cell using GLUT transporters. Once FDG is in the cell, uh, it's again treated just like glucose and a hexokinase will phosphorylate the FDG, creating FDG6-phosphate. FDG6-phosphate can't be further metabolized by the cell, so it just sort of hangs around. It's also so polar it now can't naturally get out of the cell, and the process of dephosphorylating FDG6-phosphate is actually very slow. So it tends to just accumulate in cancer cells over time, and if we give it a little while after injection, most places that's about an hour, uh, FDG will have a very high tumor-to-background ratio and we will be able to easily see tumors uh, with this agent. 
Uh, if we look at all the different kinds of cancers that are out there, obviously there are lots of different tumor types. This is only a partial list. But if we look at the five most common, they're colon, lung, breast, prostate, and lymphoma. Not necessarily in that order, uh, just in the order that they happen to be listed in this particular reference. But all five of those uh, types of cancer, there's at least some role for FDG, and we're going to go through that in terms of what the guidelines say we should be doing with FDG PET in these different cancers. And I'll rely heavily on the NCCN guidelines uh, as, we, as we go through this and what those guidelines say. So we'll start with colon cancer. So for the most part, PET is not viewed as a routine test for patients with newly diagnosed colon cancer, at least insofar as it's thought to be uh, the colon cancer is clinically localized. Where PET-CT does have a role is if the patient has a normal staging examination with, say, chest, abdomen, and pelvis CT, and there's something on that examination that's uh, a couple of different scenarios, but the most common is probably that the patient has an equivocal finding. So uh, this may be a small lung nodule, or retroperitoneal adenopathy, uh, things along those lines, in which case PET-CT can help problem solve and help determine whether those indeterminate findings are actually something we need to worry about. I, I would say probably the indeterminate findings in the liver are best left to MRI. Uh, there's a, a fair bit of evidence out there that MRI is just better for, for that particular scenario. But most things outside of the liver, uh, PET-CT will be a good problem-solving tool. Uh, the other scenario in initial staging that can arise is if the patient has uh, what appears to be limited metastatic disease or oligometastatic disease. So uh, this would be one or a small number of potential metastases in the liver and or the lungs. Those patients may still be treated on a curative paradigm. So the uh, surgeon may resect the primary and then also ablate or resect uh, a liver lesion, uh, or a, a different surgeon may uh, resect or uh, otherwise ablate a, a lung lesion. And in these cases where patients may be treated with curative intent, it's important to get PET because about 25%, uh, maybe a little bit less of those patients, will actually have uh, a uh, larger burden of disease and is appreciated on, on the anatomic imaging. So uh, about a quarter of patients that have what appears to be one liver lesion on, say, a CT, chest, abdomen, and pelvis uh, may actually have a number of other findings on an FDG PET. So uh, because we don't want to needlessly treat these patients with uh, invasive procedures uh, like surgery and ablation uh, that will be futile, it is important to get PET in these patients. If patients have a recurrence uh, after attempted curative therapy for colon cancer, uh, the applications of PET are actually very similar to they are at initial staging. So for instance, if a patient has a serial CEA elevation, their CEA is going up, they get a chest abdomen and pelvis CT, uh, there's either nothing on that or there's an equivocal finding on that, uh, PET CT scan can really help uh, problem solve that. And then uh, if a patient develops uh, one or a small number of metastases, again, in the liver or the lung generally, uh, those may still be treated, again, with curative intent, despite the fact that they're metastatic. Uh, and in that case, again, PET-CT will be useful for assuring that the patients don't have unsuspected um, higher disease burden that is appreciated on anatomic imaging. 
So moving on from colon cancer, we'll next talk about lung cancer. And lung cancer is pretty hard to avoid pet in. It has a role in almost every imaginable scenario for lung cancer. And that starts with solitary, solid pulmonary nodules. So for those solid pulmonary nodules, PET both provides characterization in terms of being uh, able to see hypermetabolism, potential hypermetabolism within the lesion, uh, but also provides systemic staging if that lesion is a cancer. And that could be either primary or metastatic. Uh, generally speaking, uh, nodules less than about 8 millimeters in size may be too small to characterize. Modern PET scanners probably do a good job down a little bit lower than that, down to maybe 6 millimeters, but at least our current guidelines still say 8 millimeters. And then for ground glass or partially ground glass, partially solid or subsolid nodules, uh, there's really no role for PET in the evaluation of those lesions. Uh, here's a, a couple of uh, snippets from the uh, latest version of the Fleischner Society guidelines. This was uh, published in Radiology in 2017. Uh, and what you can see here is that, again, uh, above that 8 millimeter threshold, uh, PET-CT is one of the options for further characterization. And I would say it's, it's probably the most popular uh, option, at least uh, in, in our clinical practice. Uh, you can uh, consider CT at three months or biopsy, but uh, most people don't feel comfortable just waiting around for a few months. And of course, biopsy is invasive. So PET-CT is a good compromise uh, and can give an immediate answer. Uh, what you'll notice, though, is that in terms of ground glass or partially solid nodules, whether single or multiple, uh, there's no mention of PET in the Fleischner Society guidelines. So again, we want to avoid PET in those particular uh, types of lesions. So in this example, uh, on the left, the solid pulmonary nodule, absolutely, PET's perfectly appropriate for that, but the ground glass nodule on the right would be an inappropriate indication for PET. Once lung cancer is confirmed in a patient, no matter what their stage is, the NCCN guidelines say we pretty much are going to get PET uh, as part of their initial staging. And that may be to improve on staging uh, with anatomic imaging. It may be so that we can have a true idea of the extent of their disease and the level of metabolic activity of their disease so that we can follow response to therapy. And here's just uh, one piece of data that contributed to this idea that PET is uh, pretty inescapable for lung cancer. Uh, this was actually not PET-CT. This was standalone PET versus diagnostic CT for mediastinal lymph node staging and lung cancer. And you can see that PET has better sensitivity, specificity, accuracy, positive predictive value, and negative predictive value. So it's not all that common that one modality versus another, one modality will just completely uh, uh, sweep uh, all of these uh, categories, but that is the case with PET. Again, this contributed to the idea that we should get PET in all patients with lung cancer. However, once a patient has been treated with uh, curative intent and maybe cured of their lung cancer, there's really no role for PET as a uh, surveillance modality. So uh, you may, uh, uh, these patients are generally followed either with chest CT or maybe chest abdomen pelvis CT. And until something shows up on that or there's some other concern that they may have a recurrence, uh, there's really no reason to image them with PET. At the time that there is suspected recurrence, they should get a PET to restage them. But again, as a surveillance modality, uh, PET is uh, thought to be kind of overkill in this situation and is uh, not recommended. Now, so lung cancer is uh, relatively easy. If a patient has newly diagnosed lung cancer, they should get a, a PET scan. Uh, breast cancer is much harder than that. Uh, at the uh, 
at one extreme, we can say that small clinically localized tumors, there's really no role for, for PET in those patients. Uh, it's too much radiation uh, um, at a societal level. It's uh, really expensive. We just don't have necessarily the PET scanner bandwidth to, to try to image all those patients. And false positives are going to be much more common than true positives in those patients. So you wind up chasing a lot of false positives. So lots of reasons not to routinely do PET in patients with small clinically localized breast cancers. Uh, however, the guidelines get a bit uh, muddied after that. And so if a patient has uh, a T3 primary tumor, which is five centimeters or greater, and N1 disease, which is uh, nodal involvement in the axilla, if they have both of those things, uh, FDG PET CT is described as something to consider in the guidelines. I think that undersells it a bit. Those patients actually, uh, somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of them will be upstaged to having systemic disease after getting a PET. So I think we're missing a lot of patients that, that have unsuspected systemic disease if we don't do PET in those patients. It's a bit of a personal opinion, uh, but again, it's described as a consideration or an option in the NCCN guidelines. If patients have either one of those two characteristics, so they have either a primary tumor that's five centimeters or greater, or they have N1 disease involving the axilla, uh, but only one of them, then generally speaking, the thought is that they shouldn't get PET. I think that's a little bit tenuous. N1 disease is N1 disease, and many of those patients will benefit from PET. So it is something to consider, I think, beyond sort of what we're told by the guidelines. And there will be patients that, uh, that can really benefit from PET uh, in that scenario. Uh, there are a few special considerations. So again, locally advanced, we've, we've already talked about. Uh, inflammatory breast cancer is generally thought to be uh, sort of de facto uh, uh, metastatic at presentation. And so most inflammatory breast cancer patients are going to benefit from PET and should receive PET at diagnosis. In uh, recurrent disease, even if it's thought to be a local, local recurrence, so say at a surgical margin, uh, those patients should actually get systemic staging and that's best done with, with FDG PET. And then something that's emerging that I'd like to see more in our clinical practice is this idea of patients that are going to go on to receive uh, surgery or surgery and radiation uh, that, uh, but are first going to get uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy for say large tumors or uh, multifocal tumors. Uh, being able to see those patients before and after getting their neoadjuvant therapy where uh, we can actually see if they've had a complete metabolic response or not to that therapy, that has a lot of prognostic information in it and I think is very useful. Uh, again, I, I would say that overall we don't see a lot of this, but I, I'd like us to utilize this more. I think it's a great application for, for pet and breast cancer. Uh, lobular breast cancer is a little bit of a special situation. We, uh, we don't necessarily see a ton of these. It's, it is a less common cancer than the invasive ductal, but lobular breast cancer has a propensity to metastasize to the bone marrow. And when it does that, it doesn't necessarily cause something that we can see on CT or bone scan. Uh, these tend to be truly marrow-based metastases, so no sclerosis, uh, no, no lytic destructive lesions. And really the only way that we're gonna be able to visualize these is with either FDG PET or MRI. Whole body MRI, if available, is a perfectly reasonable uh, imaging modality to get in this situation, but FDG PET's certainly much more available, much more widespread, and uh, can generally be done in a shorter period of time, and there are other advantages. So, uh, you know, I tend to think that the lobular breast cancer, if uh, 
there's any clinical suspicion for bone metastatic disease, uh, FEG-PET uh, would, would be the modality of choice in, in many of those patients. All right, moving on to prostate cancer. So this is the, the most common malignancy in men. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there isn't a ton of applicability of FDG-PET in, in prostate cancer. So prostate cancer tends to be relatively indolent, has low glycolytic activity, so it's often false negative on FDG-PET. Uh, FDG-PET can be useful in some metastatic castration-resistant disease, and I'll show you an example on the next slide. Uh, there are non-FDG PET radio tracers that are coming into vogue for prostate cancer, and we'll touch on a couple of those in the second part of this lecture. Uh, here's this example of where PET can be FDG PET can be useful for for prostate cancer. So uh, this is a gentleman with widespread metastatic disease. Uh, you can see extensive sclerosis throughout the spine, and before and after therapy. Uh, so moving from left to right, the CT appearance of these lesions doesn't really change. They're densely sclerotic pre-therapy, they're densely sclerotic post-therapy, and the distribution is very similar. But if you look at the FDG PET, uh, he goes from having lots of FDG PET uptake in this uh, sort of advanced and either dedifferentiated or maybe neuroendocrine differentiated prostate cancer. Uh, to having essentially no FDG uh, hypermetabolism on the post-therapy scans. So we're able to get a good idea of his therapeutic response, uh, despite the fact that there hasn't really been a change uh, in terms of anatomic imaging. It's not a common scenario that FDG-PET is used for this, but it is actually a pretty good application uh, and, and uh, um, is a worthwhile application for the properly selected patients. All right, now moving on to lymphoma. So unlike uh, prostate cancer, uh, FDG-PET and lymphoma is actually, again, kind of hard to avoid. So sort of like lung cancer, uh, vast majority of patients are gonna benefit from FDG-PET that have lymphoma. Uh, it's uh, pretty much a standard of care for evaluating Hodgkin's disease and most non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, although there's a few non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that are listed here. There may still be indications for FDG-PET in patients with those uh, types of lymphomas, uh, although they tend to be a little bit more specialized uh, than um, some of the other lymphomas, like diffuse large B-cell, uh, where it's thought that, uh, um, again, PET is sort of a standard of care and that all patients should, should get PET with that disease. And FDG-PET has uh, become uh, so important in lymphoma uh, because of both sensitivity and specificity. So as far as sensitivity goes, there may be small lesions that anatomically are normal uh, and yet uh, are hypermetabolic and are involved with lymphoma. So we have the opportunity to pick those up and improve our sensitivity. And then particularly in the post-therapy setting where there may be uh, large residual masses, even though a patient's had a complete response to therapy, uh, we're able to tell that those masses are no longer hypermetabolic. Uh, and so again, a better specificity than anatomic imaging as well. Uh, timing of PET scans in uh, in the uh, FDG avid lymphomas is starting to vary a little bit, but this still pretty much holds true. So we really want a pre-therapy baseline scan. We want to know how FDG avid their disease is and, what, and to what extent it, uh, it involves either lymph nodes or non-lymph node structures. And then uh, we want to get a mid-therapy scan, and this used to always be after three cycles, although oftentimes uh, oncologists are getting these after two cycles of chemotherapy. And then, uh, generally speaking, maybe partially dependent upon what's on the mid-therapy scan, we want to get a post-therapy scan, which uh, 
used to always be after six cycles. I'd say that uh, at least with uh, some of the trials and some of the new regimens that are out there, uh, it may be after only four cycles. And then after cure, or at least after remission, uh, routine surveillance with PET is not uh, encouraged. So it doesn't fall into the guidelines. And we really want uh, to wait until a patient has some suspicion of recurrence, if they ever do, uh, before we would re-image them with PET. And there's a, a very useful uh, response classification in lymphoma with FDG-PET. This is the Logano classification. Um, this is nice because it's a, a five-point scale. It's relatively straightforward to apply, and both the interpreting uh, radiologists or nuclear medicine physicians and the oncologists can all sort of be on the same page and all understand uh, what each other is saying. So uh, this is, a, again, a five-point scale. Uh, Lugano 1 and Lugano 2 uh, on either a mid-therapy scan or a post-therapy scan are always taken to mean complete metabolic response. Uh, Lugano 3 can get to be a little bit of a gray area, and there may be times uh, that it's viewed as a uh, partial metabolic response, uh, in indicating that chemotherapy at least can't be de-escalated. Uh, but there are times, particularly at end of therapy scans, that it would be also viewed as a complete metabolic response. Uh, Lugano 4 is generally going to be a partial metabolic response, and it is thought to indicate that there is still residual uh, viable tumor, and the patient may need uh, additional chemotherapy or, or further treatment. And then Lugano 5 can mean a couple of different things. It can mean a partial response, uh, but uh, it can also mean that there's stable disease or progressive disease. Uh, Lugano 1 is no uptake above background. Uh, Lugano 2 is uh, no uptake above uh, mediastinal blood pool. Uh, Lugano 3 is uh, mediastinal blood pool up to liver uptake, so around liver uptake. Uh, Lugano 4 is moderately higher than liver, and Lugano 5 is intensely hotter than liver. So those are sort of where the numbers come from and what we're comparing to in order to arrive at those numbers. The uh, this is a visual uh, scale, so we don't necessarily need to go around kind of measuring the SUVs or anything like that. We just want to visually look at how the uh, uptake in the residual tumor uh, compares to, uh, again, either uh, background, mediastinal blood pool, or liver. All right, so that pretty much wraps up uh, what I have to say about uh, use of FDG and oncology applications. And again, the next half of the lecture, uh, when we come back, will be um, other applications of FDG, and then some non-FDG uh, radio tracers. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.